So as we think about God's providence, here's a question that we need to consider. How does God providentially govern human actions and decisions without violating human will? God has given you a will. He's given every human being a will. But how does God work with your will, someone else's will? That's the the very important question we're going to consider today. Now, God's providential control over external circumstances is often difficult enough for people to accept. Uh, We've seen a lot of examples as we've been going through this mini-series on God's providence. Uh, That truth is found throughout Scripture. And so it's important as we, as we come to God's Word, it's our, it's our job to bring our, our thinking into line with God's thinking that we see in the, in the clear statements of Scripture. But what some people do is they adjust the Bible's claims to fit their preconceived conceptions. That's wrong, of course, and dangerous to do that. So, What we want to do is adjust our way of thinking, renew our minds according to the Scriptures. So what are we talking about today? Providence. What is it? I like this definition uh, coming from Dr. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book. Here it is. Quote, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that He, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which He created them. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do, and, number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes, end quote. So here's the question, my friends. How is it that God guides and governs all events, even including the free acts of human beings? How does he do that? Well, that's where divine providence often becomes a mystery for people. Now, part of the mystery of providence resides in the fact that God reigns supreme over all things according to his will and his pleasure, Ephesians 1 says. Yet mankind is at the same time fully responsible. All people are responsible and accountable for their choices and their actions. In other words, what I'm saying is God exercises His providence and He accomplishes His will through people, through their free and voluntary choices, through our attitudes. Now, were this fact fact limited to only Christians, well, that would be amazing enough. But it's interesting, we're going to see even from the book of Exodus today, uh, it's also equally true for someone who is a non-Christian. Someone who is an unbeliever, God still works through their will. But that brings up uh, sticky questions for some people. For example, does God cause people to sin? Does God cause people to sin? How would you answer that? I would answer according to the scriptures that, No, God never prompts people to sin. But He does even uses people's rebellion against Him to accomplish His purposes, providentially governed and employed by God Himself. Of course, confessions of faith uh, would agree with this. For example, um, 
you can look these up online if you wish. The Baptist Confession of Faith says this, quote, God's almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness are so far-reaching and all-pervading that both the fall of the first man into sin and all other sinful actions of angels and men proceed according to his sovereign purposes. It is not that he gives his bare permission, for in a variety of ways he wisely and powerfully limits, orders, and governs sinful actions so that they affect his holy designs. Yet the sinfulness involved in the actions proceeds only from angels and men and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. End quote. Well said. We'll see how that fits with Scripture here in a moment. So Exodus is, is an amazing book. As you read it, I hope you see God's hand everywhere in it. Uh, it's one of the clearest examples of this truth that we just read from the Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, I mean, just divine providence is just everywhere. We don't have time to search the whole book. Uh, I mean, you can you can see it even in how God providentially saved Moses' life and the how he was hid and, and eventually found by the princess of Egypt and uh, he was he was nursed by her. Anyway. The, the plagues that assaulted the false gods of Egypt and how God parted the, uh, the Red Sea and allowed Israel to, to pass through the Red Sea. Oh, there's just so many things. God providentially working in this great book. But there is a great mystery of providence when it comes to people. Here it is. I'll put it on the screen for you. That God operates through human choices and attitudes without violating human will and responsibility. A lot of people struggle with that. They, How can we see this? <laughs> well, Exodus, for me, has been extremely helpful. So that's why we're coming to Exodus today. I want to, it's a very helpful passage where you see God, God's workings with a king, a pharaoh of Egypt. So with that in mind, how does God work with an unbeliever but yet not violate his human will. Well, look at uh, Exodus 14. This is where we're going to start. We're going to look at several different scriptures here today. Exodus 14, look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So this is uh, how God providentially saved Israel from the Egyptian army and from Pharaoh. We're going to see how how God works more with with Pharaoh himself here in a moment. But let me ask you this, my friends. Do you believe the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible? Well, the Bible says the Holy Spirit wrote it. Read read what Peter had to say, what Paul had to say about that. There's, There's many different scriptures. If you do, then do you believe the Holy Spirit was careless in the use of his words? Or did he inspire every single word? 
The Bible says all Scripture is breathed out or inspired of God. I believe He is. He's, he's a very careful God. He cares about these words. And since He was careful in His choice of the words, as we, as we look at these words today, it's vitally important that we handle the text of Scripture in a very careful way, an attentive way, a, an accurate way. It's vital that we carefully observe the details and then, as you look at those details, observe them properly so that you can interpret them properly and come to the right conclusions. So let me uh, bring up another question as we think about Pharaoh and what did God do with Pharaoh. There's a sticky one here. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a recurring and a dominant theme as you go through the narrative of the book of Exodus. If you have an ESV study Bible, you'll find a chart that shows all the, the, the various examples of where those scriptures are. If you don't have that, you can use a concordance. I encourage you to uh, maybe underline, circle these these places, and you'll see over and over again in the book of Exodus, this is a theme that just keeps jumping out. And the idea is first hinted at in, in Exodus chapter 3. Please turn there. This is when God commissioned Moses at the burning bush. Remember, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life as a prince of Egypt. God needs to humble him, sends him in the wilderness for the next 40 years of his life so that the last 40 years of his life he can lead God's people to the promised land. So God explains a, a task to Moses there at the burning bush. And after explaining Moses' task, God gave him assurance. Because Moses had lots of excuses, five, five excuses, and God shoots them all down here. But I want you to see what he says here in Exodus chapter 3. As God gives assurance to Moses. Look at verse 19. Please look at verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. How did God know that? God makes a bold statement there. How did he know that? Well, if you know God, then you know he is all-knowing. The theological word is he is omniscient. But how will he accomplish this? Well, we're going to see as this story unfolds how God accomplishes this. It's interesting. Read the book of Exodus. If you can, try to read it in big chunks and Exodus chapters 4 through 14 contain 18 explicit references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Like I said, it's a dominant theme. And it'd be helpful if you, if you did underline them or circle them and, and take note of those. Note, note the way, uh, you know, if you do that, then you can locate them easily and, and, and hopefully the force of scripture will jump off the page at you. Hopefully it will catch your attention a little better. But what we see here, 18 explicit references. What is, what is that showing us? God's using repetition. Repetition 
in God's Word is always purposeful. God doesn't waste His words. And so the Holy Spirit's using this repetition to call our attention to an important point. What point is He trying to make? It's important that we not miss this. And so as we read Exodus, take note of who is the one actually doing the hardening of the heart here? There's a couple pendulum swings you got to watch out for. Two dangers you, you, can, fall, you can fall into as you read a, a, a book like Exodus. So just be aware of that. Don't, don't, don't take that pendulum swing too far. But Let's just take the words of Scripture here for a moment and see what is, what is God doing. Number one. First uh, truth we see here is that God warns that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will harden Pharaoh's heart. For example, look at chapter 4, verse 21. Now, this is the first example that this comes. So I'm, I'm going to kind of go in chronological order here through Exodus. And notice the progression here. Chapter 4, verse 21 says that the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to Moses... When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, just take note of that last phrase there. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, when you're reading the Bible, it's important you take note of grammar. Some of you may not like grammar. It would serve you well to learn grammar and to know how to apply it to Scripture here. For example, one of the things you want to take note of is verbs. Do we know what verbs are? Those of you who are grammatically challenged, a verb can come in two ways. It can be an action word or a being, a state of being. Now, in this case, we have an action word, an action verb. It's doing an action. It is. It talks about God doing something. And it has to do with hardening. Verbs can also come in different tenses. And as you read your Bibles, take note of the tense. Because you can get really messed up if you lose the tense. And here's one of those examples. What tense is the verb? Is it past, present, or future? Notice it is a future tense verb. Future tense. (laughs) Very key. Alright? It's not past. It's not present. It is future. Who's the subject? The Lord. Yahweh. or God is the subject. So we have God. What's He doing? Future tense. I will harden. What is the object of the verb? Notice it's heart. So we have God will harden. Heart. So this is an action. God is going to do sometime in the future. Notice he hasn't done it yet. But this is the first mentioning of this. So as you read the next verse, notice that Pharaoh's own voluntary initial response to God's demand was a negative one. <laughs> so, well, actually, look at verse uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Look at Pharaoh's response. Chapter 5, verse 2. It said, Pharaoh... Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? 
I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. What is the point? (laughs) What's the point? Well, even before God commences His providential hardening of Pharaoh's heart, notice Pharaoh's heart. Notice Pharaoh's heart. This is his free choice. He is denying God. He is rejecting Moses' request, which was, remember what it was? To let my people go. They were slaves in Egypt for like 430 years. So God sends Moses to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. That's the request. And there you go. There's Pharaoh's heart. A hard heart. He's rejecting God. He refuses to submit to the king of the universe. Because he thinks he's king. So that's the first truth. We see God warns here that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. The next reference in your Bible comes in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 13, we see Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Look at chapter 7, verse 13. It says, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So here we have the subject of the sentence is a little different from the other one. The subject this in this case is heart. The verb is hardened. So the heart is hardened. Whose heart is hardened? Pharaoh's heart was hardened. A little different because the Hebrew text is describing here the condition of Pharaoh's heart and its reaction to God's command and demand. Now the theological ramifications of the wording of this text are significant. They're huge. Very important. After all, this is the first reference to the actual hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Back in chapter 4, it just said, God's going to do this in the future. So was God forcing Pharaoh to do something that he would not otherwise have chosen to do? Was God twisting Pharaoh and making him do something he wouldn't just naturally do? Was God programming him to respond in a certain way? Is Pharaoh a robot? Is he programmed in that way? And the answer is very important because the way you think about God here is going to determine how you even live out your life, how you evangelize, how you you witness to someone. See, if God made Pharaoh respond contrary to what he otherwise would have chosen, and then God goes and judges him for that artificially imposed choice, what does that make God? Wouldn't that corrupt God's justice? Would that corrupt God's justice? My friends, please understand. Some people think I try to tinker around, mess around with Scripture sometimes with the text in, in order to kind of make it fit into my theological system. That's not what I'm trying to do, okay? And please don't don't try to do that. That's dangerous. Some people have preconceived theology systems and and that's what they believe and so they pull all these scriptures in from all kinds of places and make it fit into their box but my goal is i want to be as accurate as possible with the text of scripture allow its wording to dictate my theology 
Right? I hope that you'll do the same. So, according to the text, the first one to harden Pharaoh's heart was not God, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In fact, uh, as we will see, the first seven consecutive references in Exodus reveal Pharaoh first hardened his own heart, or that his heart was hardened. For example, look at verse 14. Let's look at a few examples here. Verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Look at verse 22. 22 says, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Turn to chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15, But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Look at verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 32, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Chapter 9, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 7 says, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So notice what's coming first. Before God goes and hardens Pharaoh's heart, what comes first according to Scripture? Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Very important. All right, well, we just read verse 7, but we're going to look at verse 12 next. What I want you to see here is that God, here's the, here's the third truth, that God finally hardens Pharaoh's heart. Look what it says in verse 12. Verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So here's the point, my friend. Only after seven different references to Pharaoh's own hardness of heart here do we find God actually intervening for the first time. And so this time the subject is who? God. God's the subject of the verb. The object of the verb is heart. So what's God doing? God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. I like the way Matthew Henry said it. Uh, he issues a very fearful warning here about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in his commentary. Matthew Henry says, quote, Willful hardness is commonly punished with judicial hardness. If men shut their eyes against the light, it is just with God to close their eyes. Let us dread this as the sorest judgment a man can be under on this side of hell. End quote. Scary. That is scary. It is a scary thing to shut your eyes to the light. Because God might let your eyes stay shut. Have you shut your eyes against the light from God's Word? Have you? Dangerous place to be if you have. The fourth truth we see in Exodus is that Pharaoh then further hardens his own heart. Now the text here returns to describe how Pharaoh personally brought about 
this hardening process. Look at chapter 9, verse 34. Chapter 9, verse 34 says, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now notice in verse 34, here in this verse, the subject is Pharaoh. Verse 35, the subject is heart. Some people look at that, verse 34 and 35, two different subjects, and they say, okay, well, which is it? Which is it? And the answer is, yes. (laughs) The answer is both. Both of them are right. Pharaoh and the heart were hardened. So Pharaoh further hardens his own heart. And then number five, the fifth truth, is that Pharaoh... or, or sorry, God further hardens Pharaoh's heart. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Drop down to verse 20. Verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Verse 27. 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Chapter 11, go to chapter 11, verse 10. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. All right, back to chapter 14 where we started. Chapter 14, look at verse 4. Verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Verse 8, verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So there we go. There's uh, there's the references we see in Exodus. Now, do you understand what's going on here? Pharaoh starts by by initiating the hardening of his own heart. And then what does God do? How does God respond to Pharaoh hardening his own heart? God judicially hardens Pharaoh's heart, and, and the army for that fact. Why? We just read it. God's accomplishing his purposes. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, he says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, that's the Red Sea, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. What's God accomplishing? Same thing he's always doing. He does everything for his own honor and glory. That's what he's doing. So God further hardens Pharaoh's heart. So let me give you a a, a grammatical survey of what I've noticed in the passages of Exodus. If my calculations are correct, uh, from a total of 19 different references, 
I'll put them up on the screen here for you. The subject is, is fairly evenly split. Ten times the subject is Yahweh, or in your English Bible, you'll have all capital letters, Lord. And then nine times the subject is Pharaoh or his own heart. So fairly evenly split from the 19 references that I've counted. So the next big question that we need to ask is this, how? How? How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Or you might ask, through what mechanism? Uh, at least part of the answer, by the way, involves, well, a lot of things, but uh, what's going on? God gave Pharaoh many opportunities to reveal his own sin, particularly his sin of pride. And once Pharaoh's displayed his prideful will, what did God do? God continued his demand. He didn't rescind his demand. He didn't stop his demand. He didn't stop his work. Confirmed a rebellion in Pharaoh's heart. And at this point, some people read the book of Exodus and they get a little bit of a... Some people have bad attitudes. Some people have questions. They get a little confused. Here's here's one question I put on the screen that a lot of people have when they read the book of Exodus. Is it fair? Is it fair? And if you're thinking this question, well then I got some good news for you because you're not the first one to ask this question, is it fair? Turn over to Romans chapter 9. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, anticipates this very question. The Holy Spirit knew that many of us would be thinking this question, is it fair? Because Paul writes about God's dealings with Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9. Very helpful passage. Very helpful. Look at Romans 9 verse 14. Paul has just written in the beginning of Romans chapter 9 of God's sovereign choice over humanity. And like Paul does, he, he often asks these questions through Romans and then answers those questions, kind of like catechism. Notice the first question in verse 14. Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Or you might reword that question and say, is it fair? Is it fair what God does with Pharaoh? Well... Let's read on. Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is it is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? We'll stop there. Good questions. So what's the answer to the question? Is it fair? Who gets to determine what fair is anyway, right? Who gets to determine that? God does. Well, for some people, that's not a satisfying answer, reading Romans 9, all right? Sadly. But it is an appropriate answer. It's addressing Exodus. Moses and Pharaoh are talked about here. It should be a sufficient answer, and it certainly is a Holy Spirit-inspired answer. So God is not only sovereign and free here. What, do we, what else do we learn about God? We learn that God is righteous, and He is good. By the way, God is good all the time. All the time. By the way, Scripture does not teach that God actively hardens everyone to whom he doesn't show his mercy. As you read the book of Exodus, remember, vitally important you interpret it in the right way. It is narrative. With narrative comes its own set of hermeneutics. So here, Pharaoh is represented as an individual example. He is not represented as a universal pattern for every single person on planet Earth. He's an exception, not the rule. God doesn't show mercy on some and then harden everybody else. In fact, God doesn't need to harden everybody else. You say, why? Why doesn't He need to do that? Well, apart from God's gracious drawing and intervention in people's lives, what what naturally happens to people? People are just going to naturally follow their own fallen natures. God doesn't need to harden people. Because they have a sin nature, and they just naturally do what the nature tells them to do. That's all God has to do. Leave them alone. (laughs) And that's precisely the point the Exodus narrative makes about Pharaoh here. Pharaoh's following his heart. So, Disney's predominant theme is a dangerous one, my friends. It seems like every Disney movie has the same theme. Follow your heart. No, don't do that. (laughs) That is incredibly dangerous. Pharaoh followed his own heart. It came to disastrous ends. So as we've seen, God's hardening of Pharaoh was not unfair, but it was in keeping with what Pharaoh's heart revealed. Basically, God gave Pharaoh what he wanted. Well, Charles Spurgeon, who is a Baptist preacher in the 19th century in London, England, he said this, uh, I found this helpful, he's got a lot of helpful comments, but he said this, quote, The divine will is accomplished, yet men are perfectly free agents. 
By the way, he was one who firmly believed in the providence and sovereignty of God and didn't pull any punches on that. But how can we reconcile these these two theological truths? A sovereign God, but yet perfectly free agents. That's referring to people. How, how does that how does that go together? Well, Spurgeon goes on to explain, quote, I cannot understand it. My dear friend, I am compelled to say the same. I do not understand it either. Certain of my brethren deny free agency and so get out of difficulty. Others assert that there is no predestination. He's talking about in the Bible. And so they cut the knot. As I do not wish to get out of the difficulty and have no wish to shut my eyes to any part of the truth, I believe both predestination and free agency to be facts. How they can be made to agree, I do not know or care to know. I am satisfied to know anything which God chooses to reveal to me and equally content not to know what he does not reveal. Believe these two truths and you will see them in practical agreement in daily life though you will not be able to devise a theory for harmonizing them on paper, end quote. So, here's here's the struggle, though, my friends. Sometimes people, they try to put God in their own little theological box. But God's incomprehensible. So you're going to blow your brains out if you, well, that's one option that's going to happen. You'll blow your brains out trying to figure out God, or you'll turn God into something he's not. Neither option's a good one. May I suggest to you that we submit our will, our thinking, our emotions, every part of our being to who God is. Remember what Deuteronomy says? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's just some things you and I can't figure out because we're not God. So what are you going to do? You bump up the will. You bump up against the the uh, the wall of divine providence. Remember that. What are you going to do? Some people resist that wall, try to dig under it, power through it, climb over it. <laughs> the proper response is when you bump up against the will of divine providence, is you bow down on your knees and you worship. That's the proper response. So, my friends. We see a ruler, a king, a pharaoh here who thinks he's supreme, he is sovereign. Of course he wasn't. Let me ask you this. Has God ceased this providential working in the hearts of human leaders in our day today? Or are there some principles that we can gain from the book of Exodus and God's dealings with a king? Do we really believe that God is in charge of leaders today like he was the leader of Egypt? By the way, the most powerful nation on planet Earth at that time. Has God changed? No. What about our own prime minister? Do we really believe that God is in total control of our prime minister and her cabinet and the parliament? What can we learn? 
Well, here's a helpful principle from Proverbs 21, verse 1. Look at this. It's on the screen here for you. The king's heart, you can insert prime minister, president, parliament. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Beautiful imagery. Let me help you understand the imagery in case you're not getting this. Because this is striking. This is awesome. Here God holds every king, every human leader of any government in the world. Where is it? Where does he hold it? It's in his hand. And so when you read here about these streams or rivers of water, don't think of a huge river like the Waikato River or the Nile River, or the Ganges River, or whatever river, Amazon. Don't think of some huge river. That's what some people tend to think of. But think of something more like this next picture. These are some guys, some, some Kiwi guys here working up uh, up in Northland, digging some, some canals and ditches in the swamps up in, in Northland, New Zealand. So think of man-made canals or these irrigation ditches that humans can dig to to channel water wherever they want it to go. So just as a farmer is digging his irrigation ditches and can redirect the flow of water wherever he wants it to go, here's the point, my friends. The, the, The principle, the biblical principle, lesson God wants you to learn is that God can bend a person's heart, a leader's heart, a king's heart, a prime minister's heart, where he wants that water to flow. God's always accomplishing what he he pleases through the, the choices and the decisions of even the most godless and, and powerful authorities in this world. So don't think of the Kim Jong-uns or however you say that guy's name, and you know, madmen like in North Korea. Okay? Don't think of dictators and other rulers in our world as outside of God's control because they're not they're not so how should we respond to this truth it is our duty to do at least three things number one draw comfort from God's providence draw comfort in a God who does guide and govern all aspects of his creation including the human will. So the sinful response is what? We worry. That's one of the sinful responses. See, worry is kind of the opposite of trust, right? So when you read Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaching when he commands us three times, don't worry, that's the negative response. That's the sinful response. What does Jesus do? Jesus points us to his creation. And he says, hey, look how I take care of my creation. The birds of the heavens, the grass and the flowers, I take care of them. What do you think I'm going to do with you? So the proper response is that we don't worry, but that we trust in this sovereign God who does guide and govern all aspects of his creation. And, of course, you can see the second response is God actually commands us to pray for our government leaders, that we would live a quiet and peaceful life, the Bible says. 
So they're not beyond hope. Even the unbelieving government leaders that God has given to us. Remember, they're like streams. They're, so, so just picture God digging these little canals around in their lives, taking them where He wants them to take them, accomplishing His purposes. It's imperative that we pray for our government leaders. And number three, then we, it's also important. Our duty is to submit ourselves to whatever God chooses to do through our leaders. Of course, there's, there's danger zones here that we need to watch out for too then, don't we? It doesn't mean that you have to obey everything that the government tells you to do, right? That would be wrong. The proper response is the same kind of response that the apostles had when they were brought before the the leaders of Israel and told not to preach about Jesus. Stop talking about this Jesus of Nazareth. What did the apostles say? It's better to obey God rather than man. We will continue to preach about Jesus. (laughs) Right? So, we we don't break clear commands of Scripture even when the government tells us to, or you, tells us not to, we continue to obey God rather than man. But, there are many things that government tells you to do. You may not like them. <laughs> okay, There's lots of things government tells us to do or not to do, and we don't like them. We find them frustrating. We can't understand why this law exists. What's the proper response? We submit. We submit. We don't rebel against the human authority that God has given to us, but we bow the knee recognizing those leaders are from God. These laws are therefore from God. Therefore, I'm going to choose to obey God. Ultimately, we're obeying God. So my friends, it's hard, isn't it? It is, it's very challenging. But that's what God wants us to do. We draw comfort from His providence. Certainly don't worry. We pray for our leaders and we submit ourselves to whatever God chooses to do through our leaders. So I hope that, as, as we, we've seen, what was the answer then to the first question that we asked? How does God providentially govern human actions and decisions without violating human will. God didn't make us robots. The unbeliever is not a robot. They have a human will. That's part of being in the image of God. They have a will. You have a will. Everyone has a will. God does still, therefore, reign supreme over all of His creation. He is governing and guiding, even in human actions and decisions. They do correspond to each other. I hope you believe so. So, don't forget, friends, that our theology is going to drive our methodology. In other words, what you believe about God is is going to be lived out in your everyday life. That's why this is important. Have to get the right theology of God. Otherwise, oh, and and, and this one, for example, you could end up with man-centered theology in in how you witness to another person how church life is lived out becomes very man-centered sometimes if if we get this wrong 
Uh, there's, there's a lot of wrong pendulum swings. So may God help us by His grace to understand that He does govern human actions and, and decisions with, without violating your will, without violating the other person's will. It is a truth. They're both true at the same time. So may we believe them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Exodus and for real people worked out in real life situations. And we're thankful to see how you work with real people in real life situations. And yet you are a sovereign God who's providentially working in people's lives and accomplishing your purposes. May we see how these these work together. May they give us comfort. May they encourage us. May they help us to know how to live, how to witness, uh, how to to be good soul winners for Christ. So, would you open the Scriptures to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be good soil and receive the Word, live it and act upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.